From Daylight, I'm Kazuki Akiba. I'm Brandon Beiser. And this is Sound Eye Baseball. This is a podcast where you and I find unseen baseball gems by analyzing them alongside different trends, news, and motivation behind many moves around the league today. And today, we discuss the science of the baseball in the major leagues. And here to talk more about this is Dr. Meredith Wales, an astrophysicist who's an expert on baseball construction. And warning, there are some background noises as we have some cat friends joining us here in this episode. And now, leaving a dent in the batter's eye as Marmaleos absolutely tees off. Is that fair or foul? It is a fair ball! Welcome everyone to season number three of Sayonara Baseball. I am Brandon Beiser and I'm lucky enough to be now your full-time co-host of the podcast. So thank you, Kazuki, for bringing me on. I am happy to be here. Today, we're going to start our season three coverage of the podcast and for previewing the 2021 Major League Baseball season with a bit of a different type of preview. Uh, But first, some official podcast business. We now have a Twitter account. We ask you that you please follow Sayonara Baseball on Twitter at Sayonara B-B-A-L-L. It looks like Sayonara Basketball, but it's Sayonara B-B-A-L-L on Twitter. Kazuki and I will be tweeting from that account on occasion and providing updates for the podcast. And to to know why it's B-B-Ball is because Twitter won't let me spell out the full name. Uh, there's a character limit apparently for a username, so it's BB Ball. So yes, we are signing our baseball, but we look like signing our basketball. Uh, today's episode is a special one. Like I said, it's the preview for the 2021 season, but we're not going to talk really about like division previews, player previews. The news of the week for baseball, other than transactions, has been the baseball. Like there has been a memo put out by Major League Baseball doctoring baseballs. And we had to revisit this issue about what's the deal with doctoring baseball? What's the deal with the baseball? Why does the baseball matter so much? And if you all remember from our interview in December with Todd Radom, he was very adamant about learning about the science of the sport of baseball. And afterwards, when we promoted our episode, he came back and gave us a bit of a, of a hint as to who to talk to about this. So we discuss about the science of the baseball, not baseball, the sport, but the baseball, the thing you hold in your hand, there is one person you go to. And Todd was lucky enough to connect us with that person. And today we're going to bring Dr. Meredith Wills into the conversation. Dr. Meredith Wills, her Twitter biography is the best way I can summarize who she is. Uh, It goes as astrophysics PhD, baseball hall of famer, baseball construction expert, data scientist, official scorer, superhero, knitting designer, not necessarily in that order. What does that mean? She has spent years as a NASA-funded astrophysicist. In the last several years, or several many years, she has shifted her time to studying the construction of the thing you hold in your hand when you play the sport of baseball, the baseball. With the advancement and increased use of data being more available throughout baseball, she has been able to take the data about the baseball, stat track data, all the baseball, the data about the baseball, how it travels, everything, and analyze it very, very closely. She has presented at multiple Sabre conferences. She's presented at multiple baseball analytics conferences. Her most recent studies have focused on the proliferation of home runs. So why there have been so many home runs in baseball over the last three to five seasons. We're going to spend half our conversation talking about that. But I think it's also very important that we bring up other things that she's done. 
because it's very important, like her career to how she has brought her life to the sport of baseball. Outside of studying baseball, she has created a superhero character to help young women study astronomy. She has several original pieces of knitwear, things that she has created in the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's why she is a Baseball Hall of Famer. And she also holds the credentials to be an official score at any baseball game, which is an incredible repeat to add to the fourth thing we already mentioned, among many other things. So with the help of Dr. Wills, today we're going to talk about the changes in construction of the baseball and how that has influenced the game we see on the field. With that all in mind, we will also learn what we can possibly expect to see in 2021 from what we see in the baseball in our hands. Coming up after the break, our conversation with Dr. Meredith Wills. Verlander saying that uh, he believes the balls are juiced in actual major league competition this year. Would you would you agree with that assessment, John? Oh, I would agree. I listen. Gave up a two-run homer in the top half of the first to Yasmani Grandal. And this is Eric Thames who launches to right center field. And the Brewers have a 3-0 lead. Welcome back to Sign Our Baseball. Uh, Today, we are pleasured and delighted to bring on our guest. Our guest today is Dr. Meredith Wills. Dr. Meredith Wills, welcome to Sayonara Baseball. Thanks for having me. Uh, as we do with all of our guests, we start off as every baseball game starts off with, with the first pitch. So describe the first time you took a part of baseball and how did it feel to, to look inside a baseball and just feel the inside of it? I don't know if I was focusing on that the first time I took a part of baseball, actually. I, 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 the first time I did it was because um, a baseball is made primarily of yarn on the inside. And one of the things I do in my copious spare time is I also do knitting design. And um, because of the yarn inside the baseball, I thought, well, if it's knittable, maybe I can actually, you know, make stuff out of it. And so the first time I took a part of baseball was basically to get to the yarn. So, I mean, I didn't, take the, you know, the razor to the laces or whatever. I did take it apart systematically the way that I do now, but it was mostly because I want to, wanted to keep the red laces in case I needed them for a project later on. So it wasn't even like one baseball to see what the inside was, except to figure out if the yarn was knittable. It was, once I figured that out, it was, can I take apart a bunch so that there's enough to do some kind of design? That's great. I never thought. Uh, I, 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 I never think about like the, the red yarn actually goes through the baseball. It doesn't it? Doesn't exist. It's it's, it's actually the, the the interior. Start with my. I don't have a cross section here, but the inside of a baseball, see, um, underneath the covers, is something called the center, and the center is inside that cotton thread layer. There are three layers of gray or white wool yarn. And that's oh, what wow. you knit with. So the, the red laces are, they would have been accent or something. Oh, and, uh, okay. They've, they've turned out to be some of the most important data for understanding baseball construction. But I never would have expected that. Nobody did. I mean, that was that was sort of one of those, wow. oh, gee, that's not right. Like I said, like your, your, hot, your interest in knitting has, has let, get, be, led you to the construction of baseball. And we'll get, Without the knitting experience, I would not have been able to address 
any of these questions at all. Wow. That is that is utterly fascinating. Like I never thought it would take that type of like that type of line of thinking to get where you are. And we'll get into we'll get into the baseball deconstruction stuff a little bit later on. But I think we want to start with all of your other interests and where your your other career. So before you really st- step foot into baseball as you are today, you were an astrophysicist. So what did you study as an astrophysicist and and how did that really just start your career? I always feel like I need to clarify this that uh I get the question a lot of what is an astrophysicist doing in baseball? How does she get interested in baseball? Um, I was born on opening day. It was the day that Hank Aaron tied Babe Ruth's home run record. Uh, My dad grew up as a Milwaukee Braves fan. And so therefore watched Hank Aaron played for the Milwaukee Braves for their entire existence. And uh, he, he basically took it as a sign that I was somehow supposed to do something in the game. He went out, he bought me a baseball bat the day I was born that I still own. Uh, I was three weeks old when I was taken to my first baseball game. I don't remember how old I was when I learned to start keeping score. Uh, I didn't become an astrophysicist till college. So, you know, to the the transition, it's like, I've never not been a baseball person. Uh, As far as the astro, my work there was, uh, I studied the sun and particularly the corona of the sun which if uh, people aren't familiar with that, whenever you see a picture of a total eclipse and there's all of the, you know, cool light stuff around the eclipse, you know, that's like basically the point is you see like all of the bright around, um, around that dark disc. That's part of the corona, but we can only see it from the earth when um, you have an eclipse like that. It turns out that if you put a satellite up, we can actually see it all the time. We're looking at very high temperatures. So we're, it's like in x-rays, it's, you know, a few million degrees, but it's really, really cool stuff. And it's very different than what you normally see in astrophysics. There's lots of, of movies and incredible dynamics. And in some ways it's almost like, it looks almost like meteorology in some ways, as opposed to, you know, it's not like you're looking at like little points of light or stuff that doesn't change very fast. You're, you're just, it's incredible. And Actually, anybody who's watched the Weather Channel, the, the kind of data that I used to work with is now on all the time. Anytime you've seen a really cool picture of the sun, like the Weather Channel has this stuff. It's fabulous. So I'm you know, excited that it's ultimately become this cool thing that NASA really promotes. Oh, that, that's fantastic. Uh, as, as, as Kazuki will vaguely remember from when we first met, they always ask you, like, if you didn't do this job, what else do you do? And I wrote down meteorologist. And all my friends know this. I grew, up, I grew up in New England. Like, we predicted snow days. Like, that was like our game. Like, we wanted to predict snow days. So I studied like low pressure fronts, uh, barometric pressure, isobars, like everything I wanted to so I could predict how many snow days I had. I like to say in my senior year of high school, we had the biggest snow day in pretty much the history of like my time in living in Vermont for the past like seven years. We had the 30 inches of snow on Valentine's Day, which was another thing. So it's impressive. It's, it's just a nice connection to see that. I, I, I will say that. So one other aspect of your career that came from this, and it goes back to your Twitter bio, which we read in our introduction, is that it said you were a superhero. And I read that the superhero was partial, was very much inspired by your research as an astrophysicist. So talk about what it was like to just, you know, create this character and really just demonstrate like, this is what a superhero is. I mean, Solar Girl uh, is only astrophysics and particularly solar physics, hence Solar Girl. Um, Oddly enough, it started as sort of a Halloween costume because uh, a friend of mine, this is, you know, I hope, 
I forget it. It must have been my second year of grad school because October would have been too soon. But I had a friend who already called me Solar Girl, and it sounded like a, a superhero. So I, in addition to the the you know knitting design that I do now, I did costume design, at, you know, high school and college. I did a lot. Uh, you tell the design and creativity goes into a lot of being a scientist, by the way. So anybody who thinks that's somehow not related, you have to be creative to be a good scientist. There's no other way. Otherwise, you don't have original ideas. People need to understand this. Creative people are good scientists and vice versa. <laughs> but so, yeah, so I just kind of came up with the superhero character. And um, it, it started with, you know, I was, I was a, a teaching assistant for an astro class. I just sort of showed up in costume. Because, you know, that's what you do. And uh, it ultimately started leading to doing education and public outreach. And I had other friends who, where I went to grad school, um, Montana State in Bozeman, uh, there was a physics education research group that was doing some amazing stuff. And actually, my master's ended up being in that. And education and public outreach was a really big thing with interactive activities and hands-on and things that you'd never associate with astrophysics. And I figured out these great ways to turn something that, that you'd think would be esoteric into literal hands-on, we're going to do arts and crafts, or we're going to go out and run down the local, the football field at the stadium so that you can, you know, one of my favorite, uh, my favorite demonstrations and actually just found the pieces for this, except I need to blow the basketball back up, is I have a basketball that's painted to look like the sun. And then there's this activity of, okay, you know, I've got a softball going down to like the head of a pin. And which of these is the size of the earth compared to my basketball sun? And then how far away is it? And it turns out that if the sun is the size of a basketball, the earth is about the size of a peppercorn. So it's tiny. It's actually tinier than a big sunspot, which is one thing that's kind of cool. So I've got like a sunspot on there that's bigger than the earth. Um, and at that scale, the earth is 50 meters away. And that's where the football field comes in because, you know, I, I'll get kids to like see how far down. And there's invariably one that like tries to leave the stadium, which I always think is funny. It's like, no, it's not quite that far, I promise. But uh What's interesting is there's always one kid who nails it and I'll get to 50 meters and there's one kid standing next to me. I've never had that not happen, but those are the kind of things I would do. And so I wanted to make uh, science really engaging and accessible. And I feel like I keep trying to do that. You know, that's a huge part of, I think why I've been interested in the baseball construction, why I like talking to people about it, you know, why I do Every time I give a talk, I've got show and tell. I've literally got baseballs that I want people to handle because that's how you get engaged. That's how you learn. That's how you get excited about things. You know, that's, I think it's cool. I want other people to as well. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. Like I love hearing about how people have advanced their own way of like connecting with students and children about STEM concepts and, and subjects. And to feel like you've done that and continue that with it in your, in your way that you're doing it now is incredible. So after those two things, and you already alluded to this about kind of like you were always a baseball fan. So when you take what you've done in astrophysics, you said the creative side of and all and the scientific side, how do you take those two mindsets that you've adapted and used for so long in your career and then channel it into 
like what we're going to talk about later on, like the sports science, the truly sports science stuff. Well, there's, there's, I guess there's two aspects to it. There's, there's again, when I'm not taking part baseballs, I actually do sports data science. And I look at, you know, ball and player tracking data and the, what I did in astrophysics, you know, the sun, like I said, it's a lot of dynamics. It's, it's basically all movies, you know? So, so we're not talking about anything that you can just describe with statistics or anything that's sort of these, these individual points. Uh, it's very it's beautiful data, but it's also incredibly complicated. And when I first discovered that, or the way I first discovered that there might be a place for me in sports data science was actually before StatCast became StatCast, uh, Corey Schwartz, who's, uh, I want to say he's the VP of tech for MLBAM, and he basically, he runs the whole StatCast thing, or that side of StatCast. And I gotten to know him and he sent me something about how they were going to start doing player tracking. And everything that I had learned studying the corona of the sun was applicable to this idea of, okay, you're keeping track of potentially 13 players on the field all at once. And what can you learn from that? You know, what can you do with those data? And the idea of something that was quantitative and spatial and dynamic, you know, which stuff's moving around was exactly what I did already, except look here, it's baseball. and I can do it in baseball. So it's kind of cool. Um, as far as the, the other part with the baseball construction, um, a lot of that sort of came down to, it's almost like the science was, I don't want to say an afterthought, but had none of the stuff happened with the baseball construction, I would still be taking apart baseballs for these creative projects that I've been working on. Uh, there's, I've been doing things in conjunction with the baseball hall of fame projects that are made out of the baseball yarn because I have to keep doing these research studies aren't happening as quickly as I'd like, but I'm saving all the yarn and everything is going to go towards some project that is an original knitted piece that will get auctioned off in support of the baseball hall of fame. And you know, that was originally the goal. And frankly, that will still happen. You know, every baseball who gives its body to science will ultimately take on a new life as some kind of creative artistic thing that supports the Baseball Hall of Fame. And the science part was when questions first started coming up in 2017, that something was causing a home run surge and we didn't know what the baseball had affected things in the past. I was already taking them apart and I decided to look. And I happened to find something, but had I not already had the creative part and had I not had the sort of inquiry approach to things, you know, who I was talking to someone the other day about the difference between just sort of messing around with something versus science is that in science, you write things down. And, and that was pretty much it was I just started what I was doing anyway. I just started taking data and that gave me an answer that was meaningful, but I would have been doing it anyway. Yeah, like I said, it's, it's just you start writing stuff down. Uh, and, and like you said, you, you mentioned that you're in the Hall of Fame. Uh, can you explain how, like you said, you're, you became a knitting, like you're a Hall of Fame knitter? Like, I, I think I, I, I love that. It's like, like, like you said, probably your, your bio, which is like not necessarily in these orders. And it's like, Hall of Fame. And you're like, you have to pause for a second because I've been to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Like, did I miss something? You probably did. did. It's been on display since 2010, unless you weren't there. Have you been there since 2010? I was there in 2007. Go back. This is, <laughs> okay. this is Opal. 
Hello. Hello. Did you hear her? Did you hear her? Yes. She's too loud. So, um, she's the one who eats the baseball uh, laces, by the way. <laughs> so, science if science has has a critic. It's it's the cat. It's, it's... Uh, well, she wants to be a research assistant. Actually, the problem oh, is that she doesn't why. understand what her role should be. She thinks it's <laughs> ingesting the laces, but. Yeah, the, the the Baseball Hall of Fame connection actually started, um, there's an organization called Stitch and Pitch, a fan organization where um started in the mid-2000s and they'll host, uh, most. I think most major league teams still do this, they host a one game a year where every one, you know, you bring your knitting or your crochet or your embroidery or whatever and we, you sit in a particular section and and do your projects. And they had a, it was a design contest in 2007 that I ended up winning with a pair of socks that I designed where you can actually put the logos of a lot of different teams in. I need to go back and update the logos, by the way. So I know they're out of date, Uh, but I want to say it was 25 logos at the time. And the pattern is still available online for free. and it's got logos, which is a hard thing to do, except because it was an MLB sanctioned contest, as long as I don't charge money, uh, people actually can, you know, go in and make the socks, which is kind of cool. But in 2009, the uh, Hall of Fame approached me and they asked for the socks as, a, you know, to add to their collection. And so since then, it's actually been, the, the pair of socks has actually been on display. I, I did it for the Colorado Rockies. Um, and I mean, I love the Rockies. I really do. I decided, I mean, I had other teams as well, but I decided I want to put it in for the Rockies because there's just not a lot of Rocky stuff in the hall of fame. And I figured they'd stay on display longer than say, if they were the Yankees, they'd end up straight down in the vault after, you know, 30 seconds of being displayed. And as far as I know, the socks are still on display. Um, since they, there were in the today's history section, like the locker, for the Rockies, now they're in some a section, I think it's called Today's Game. And there are a couple pieces there for things that fans have created for their teams. I remember there being a Yankees yarmulke and my socks, I think, are right next to them. Yankee, Yankees yarmulke, I've seen those on display before. Those are really cool. Like you said, they, they, to do logos is really interesting. To do logos is kind of like a strain. It, it takes like a lot of focus on like the, like the actual points. And then you have to, like you said, like you, it's MLB sanctioned. You can't screw up. It's like, it has to be It's actually the, the, the hard part with the logos and why I didn't have them for all of the teams. Like there's no way I'm going to get a proper Mariners logo or even the current Marlins logo would be tough. Oh, and the Jays, Jays is impossible. Is that I have something like a 12 by 16 pixel square or pixel area. Oh yeah. That's, that's tight. That's a tight square. It's remarkable how many I've gotten when you think 25 is 75% of the league. Mm-hmm. I'm very That's, proud of myself. I'm very, I, absolutely. Um, and like you, like you've brought up before, like this, this knitting interest really fueled a lot of other things that like, relate to baseball construction, but it's one other baseball thing that you are quite like you brought up before. It's like you're an official score and like, you've always had baseball in, in your, in your interest as a child and growing up, like you said, you were born opening day. It's like you had, it was in your blood kind of in a certain way. It's like, what's it like being an official score and like talk about like what it's like to like, when you hold, you hold like a history book in your hands every time you, you do it. Oh, I, I, uh, I score. It's, it's a rare game that I go to where I do not score the game. And I have my own scoring system that I 
designed, oh, must be like a decade ago now, that it's, there's a lot of detail to it. The idea being, and it's, it's designed in a way that you can record things very quickly with a lot of detail to the point of like order of balls and strikes and things. And it's just, there's a lot of, it's almost like fill-ins, but the right fill-ins. And the idea was that I wanted as much detail as possible to, I can't record types of pitches for pitchers. That doesn't work. And challenges are a real problem with the paper scorebook. So how dare they? But I'll score it, you know, pretty much every game. And because the book is as interesting as it is, it's kind of weird to be sitting along the third baseline. And I very often have a fan come up to me like, are you the official scorer for this game? I'm a fan sitting on the third baseline. No, but thank you. I'm glad you think so. Uh, but no, I have actually been an official scorer. Um, I guess the highest level was, I was actually a scorer for the Fond du Lac Dock Spiders, which is a Northwoods uh, league team that's a summer collegiate league. And uh, that was particularly interesting because summer collegiate baseball is fabulous to watch and really hard to score because you have players who are very, very good who haven't necessarily played together much. And so you get some really, really interesting interactions that if you're trying to keep track of, you know, what's going on and how people have moved around the bases. And I remember my dad coming to a couple of games and coming up to me afterwards, like, I can't believe you got through that game. So I mean, it was a blast. I loved it, but it kept you on your toes. So as a scorer, like, is there like a particular spot you want to like sit at? Like, where's like the best view for a scorer? You know what? Um, the thing is, there kind of isn't one. I've run it. It's funny. I mean, even, even I was watching a, a spring training game. The game day stringer put it up as a, a blocked swinging strike, strikeout. It actually was not. Because we had a view on TV that the ball hit the plate. The plate is foul territory. The catcher threw the ball to the first baseman. That's a two, three ground out or put out, depending on how you choose to, to phrase it. The stringer couldn't see that the ball was blocked. The person saw that the ball was swung or that the bat was swung and then saw that an out occurred and that the ball didn't really go anywhere. So the assumption of a blocked swinging third strike makes sense. It was wrong. Um, that's an excellent example of why if you're sitting, say, behind home plate, you're going to miss things. Uh, if you're sitting along a particular baseline, you may miss things. It might be easier not behind home plate because of things like that. I think it, it's a little, I think you're less likely to have line of sight issues, but there's nothing perfect. Uh, it, if anything, the best thing for a view for a scorer is make sure you're having someone sitting next to you who's paying attention when you're in there writing down an incredibly complicated play that affects the box that you're currently working on and the two other players that were on base already. And once you know, you're through that, hopefully the next at bat has not yet finished and you have someone sitting next to you who can tell you this is what the previous three pitches were, et cetera. So that's probably the best thing is, is where you want to sit is next to somebody else who knows what they're talking about. Yeah, I, I I agree. It's it's like the whole idea of the spotter. It's like yeah, yeah, that, that person who's got telling you telling you that all the steps along the way. And as we kind of look at your official scoring background, you kind of brought it up, but like there's a lot of like technical details and like very specific things you have to worry about. So how did you like you said like you 
you ha- you're, a, you're a scientist by trade and you learn baseball data. Like how did you get, like start learning the ins and outs of baseball data and what advice would you have for fans of baseball, people who are trying to learn sports analytics, like how you kind of get that first step in that hurdle to say, this data isn't so bad. Oh man. Um, it looks really complicated. Well, no, that's no actually the, the, the thing that's funny is I've only, I didn't start really getting interested in baseball data until there was the possibility of player tracking data. And some of that is just because I'm a total defense geek. You know, I, I much prefer a fabulous double player, a really good, you know, just, just, you know, or even a really good shift. And one of the best games I ever saw was probably one of the most boring games everybody else in the stadium saw because every player seemed to be set up to get the ball <laughs> such that nothing happened. So the positioning was fabulous and I loved it. And most people left early, but again, defense geek. Uh, so in my case, I wasn't really that into the data that were available because it, it lends itself to statistics, but actual, you know, forward based on first principles kind of analysis questions, it's harder to, to find that approach. And, you know, it's not my forte. When, the, uh, when there was a prospect of spatial data, I mean, there's two things. First, the data didn't exist. And then now that the data do exist for a long time, you couldn't even get it. I mean, even now you can get batted ball data, but I don't think you can get player data. I mean, even, but even the batted ball data at the time didn't exist. So I quite literally, you know, I was talking to teams for a long time. I just created my own metrics. I I came up with effectively pseudo data uh, which is extremely limiting. You know, you can only ask certain kinds of questions because for instance, you can't just come up with like a route. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, not, not in a, you can't do a simulation for that, not without like building an entire simulation. But I came up with metrics and some of them were drawings and some of them were just theoretical write-ups for, okay, here is how you would, here's how you would come up with this metric. Some of them were actual calculations that had actual, you know, visualizations associated with them. But, but that was my approach was, it wasn't a question of these are the data that are available. It's, this is what the data will look like when it becomes available or when I have access to it. And so I had like a whole portfolio, maybe a dozen different metrics that I came up with. And some of them are, I'm now seeing variations on those that are, are being used. In some cases, I'll actually look and I'll be like, I could have done that better. But, you know, it's not my job. I do other things. That's, that's fantastic. I love that you create, like Chris said, it's like, it doesn't exist, so I'm going to make it exist. Well, and, and but, you- but the whole, the reason you will get noticed, and actually this is sort of speaks to your, your question about people getting involved. What you want to do is you want to have an idea that isn't already out there. You do, I mean, reproducing what somebody else has done is actually incredibly useful because it's validation, but that's not going to get you noticed. What's going to get you noticed is if you have an original idea and it doesn't have to be an incredibly complicated one. I mean, even the baseball construction research, it would never would have struck me that that was original, but apparently it is. And it's getting noticed and it's not hard. It's really not hard. You know, I did a, a video with Dallas Braden a couple of years ago and he took a part of baseball on TV. If Dallas can do it. Okay. 
Dallas is an extremely bright guy, even though like he won't let people know that. So, you know, he'll do better than a lot of people, but most people can do it. That's great. It's like you literally just you, you have taken us to the next that I want to talk about. And it's like, and this is the baseball construction stuff, like the the, the work that you say, how does not exist? It became so original and so specific for you. So let's, I want to break down baseball construction to two parts. The, what we see when you hit the ball, what you see when you throw the ball. So the first thing I want to talk about is when you observed your first time taking a part of baseball and then you hear what's happening with this proliferation of home runs in the last three to five years. What do you start seeing as you take a part of baseball and think about what could have led We'll get into the what could have led, but what other what start what did you start to see when you took out a baseball from the years with the with the high home run rates? Wow. Well, um, for for 20, 2017 was really the first time that it, that you know ba- back when twenty seventeen seemed like the end all be all for home run surges. You know, no one remembers that. And MLB actually commissioned their home run committee study. You know, it's 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 actually an incredibly uh, illuminating read it's i mean it's very it's technical it's just, it's a scientific um presentation of it but it's just 83 pages uh, so it's it's you know set, set aside the time but it is worth it uh when the 2017 home run surge you know was in the process of happening when people were starting to study it i had already been taking apart baseballs for the hall of fame related uh projects and uh, Alan Nathan, who ended up being the chair of the Home Run Committee, gave a really interesting talk at uh, the 2017 Sabre Seminar in Boston, where he found that there were, he was looking, ultimately found data on drag on the ball and showed just it was 2015 through 2017. And in particular, he found that there were changes in drag over the course of 2015 and the 2016, 2017 were comparable. And I mean, we've since sort of found that it's finer detail than that, but compared to previous years, like if you look at, if you look at the home run rate graphs and things like, you know, they're a lot closer to each other than say 2015 was or 2014. Um, But it, what I took that as was, okay, you know, I can treat these as comparable at the time I had baseballs that I knew were 2017 and 2016, but I didn't have enough of a single year. And I thought maybe it could be the baseball, but even then I didn't really know a lot about the ball. And certainly there wasn't even anything out there to say the ball was what was going on. There were a lot of different theories. There was, you know, maybe it was uh, the players, you know, maybe it was juicing again. Maybe it was the bats. That was another one. Um, maybe it was the way that the strategy was being done. You know, there, there was sort of the beginning of the three true outcomes. You know, guys were swinging differently. Uh, climate change was my favorite. Maybe because it was getting hotter, you know, the balls were traveling farther. And the Home Run Committee addressed all of these things in their report. And ultimately what they found was the only thing that was a statistically significant difference, that was a meaningful difference, was the ball. The ball had lower drag. They could not find something had to be physically different about the ball to cause that. But they couldn't find anything that was physically different. Um, I was looking at the different parts of the baseball in a way that was much finer than anything they had done. And just a couple of days before the report came out, I discovered that the lace thickness was different from 2014, where we knew there were very few home runs in 2017, where we'd hit our 
home run surge and discovered that the laces on the 2017 or 2016, 2017 balls in this case were 9% thicker than for 2014. And that is actually a huge difference in terms of the percentage, even though it's a tiny fraction of a millimeter. So you can understand why nobody would have paid attention for it being, you know, like having a, a meaningful difference. You know, it, it, I don't think it would have struck Rawlings, say, to be like, all right, this, this minuscule change in lace thickness is somehow going to affect how the ball travels. Because uh, before then, drag wasn't even something that was considered. I mean, we couldn't even measure drag or at least get data on it uh, until we had StatCast. And StatCast has only been around since 2015. So it, they're, they're, we couldn't have known. I mean, that's one of the things people have to realize is it's not like we could have solved this problem in the, or at least understood that the issue was drag. Uh, I now I'm actually starting to work on stuff. So I'll do the standard shout out. Baseballs, I will take any and all baseballs, please. Yes. Now is good because then I can do upcoming studies, but I'm also looking historically. And uh, yeah, there looks like there's interesting stuff in historical data. If I can get older baseballs that are going to tell us about, for instance, previous home run rates. There's good stuff. But the idea of the um, tying the differences to the balls themselves and to the, the changes in home run rate really took. I don't know, kind of a, a, a new level of, of approaching things. Uh, one that, that I, it, I guess goes back to the having the knitting background and or fiber arts in general is that it really looks like one of the main, um, I guess, effects with a baseball for the home run rate and presumably then related to the drag really is lace thickness. And it's not just that, but the way that baseballs have been made is they'll be air dried. Uh, 2019 was an aberration there, but otherwise it looks like every year that's how they've been made. And an air dried baseball, because the laces are cotton, uh, cotton, when it's air dried, does not shrink and it stays stretched. If you, if you have, you spill coffee on your t-shirt and you scrub the stain out in the bathroom and you let it dry, you're gonna have a divot in your shirt for the rest of the day because you've let it air dry. It, and on the other hand, if you wash your t-shirt and you throw it in the dryer, it's gonna shrink back to what it was. If you have the heat and the agitation, then you end up with something that goes back to how it was. If you let cotton air dry, it stays stretched. So when you have those laces under tension and you have to realize the the covers are wet when they put them on. That's the only way you can make the leather round. You know, you got flat leather, you got to make it round. If you moisten it, then it'll stretch to become round. So you're pulling laces through wet leather, hence they get wet. You have to let the ball air dry and those laces are under massive tension. So of course they are going to be stretched and stay stretched. What ends up happening though is thinner laces just aren't as strong, so they'll stretch more. And the more stretch you get at the seams, the more that seam makes the ball not round. You get, it becomes, it's almost like a weak point along the ball. So it's like a deformation. And so the ball itself becomes less round. It's not quite the same as seam height, 
uh, and this is something that I've had some discussions with people about, they'll, they'll talk about seam height, but what I can find is sort of roundness and seam height is two different things, which does require you take the ball apart. And there seems to be a lot to that. You know, that's, so, a, so that's just amazing. It's, like, it's kind of cool though, but yeah. I, I just, I just questioned everything I do with my laundry for a hot, for a second there about how I like clean my like cotton t-shirts. Like I was like, I put them in the water, how do I do this way? But it's amazing. Like you said like, like the tension on the, on the cotton strings, how much that matters, the lace height and everything. Actually, the, the, the height is, it's the thickness of the laces. The height of the seams is not the same thing as the thickness of the laces. That's a good thing to remember then. So the, so how would you, how would you, how would you differentiate the two? So the, so what seam height is what then? Uh, the seam height will be affected by this, a couple things. First of all, how, how big the covers are compared to the inside of the ball. So if the cover's a little big, the, what dictates a lot of the seam is how much leather gets squished under the, under the stitches themselves. So if the, the cover's a little big, in order to pull it tight, you're squishing more leather under those stitches because that's the only way the cover will be tight. The other thing is that you see, um, you see this more with kind of seconds balls as opposed to game balls, is that if the leather is too thin or too stretchy, you will sometimes see that the holes themselves get pulled and where that tension is and where the, the, the holes are distended, that leather will also get squished under the laces. And those are the kind of things that affect seam height. Um, it's not to say lace thickness doesn't, but it's not the same thing. It's not that's like a, just thicker laces aren't going to give you higher seams. That's a good thing to remember. And so high, it, it, because think about it, like people have talked to me about, so did MLB juice the 20, or in this case, it would have been Rawlings because MLB hadn't purchased Rawlings yet. Uh, did Rawlings juice the 2017 baseballs to which my response is, well, not only do I not think they juiced them, but if they had intended to, they wouldn't have done it this way because most people do think that lace thickness is the same as seam height. And if it was, higher seams will actually add drag to the ball. It won't travel as far. So why in the world would you use thicker laces to juice the ball if that's what you think? Because you'd be thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to make the seams higher. Uh, so, so yeah, the, it's a total disconnect. They, they could not have done the 2017 ball on purpose. I, I like that dispelling myths about the, the simplicity of like something, a, a very specific detail about that versus the other. And I want to go into a, a simple question about this as we start going from 2017, 2018, 2019, even 2020, 2021. When you see all these factors that are changed, that you're, that are just significantly different than baseball, can we say as a baseball, as a statistician, a scientist, a baseball fan, that these changes have caused the incredible change in number of home runs? Like, is that, is that a one, is that a one to somewhat one connection? Is it even possible to say that? I mean, from my background, I'm always careful to say that. No, no, you, you can, but not just with what I'm doing. Okay. With that's good what to know. I do, um, I've found things like, for instance, that the 2017 balls just were not as round, that there was deformation and that kind of deformation should affect the aerodynamics. I am not the person though who can test 
the aerodynamics. Uh, there's been some great, great work uh, by Barton Smith at um, at Utah State. Uh, he, he's an aeronautical engineer, the professor there, and he's done like he's 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 the seam shifted weight guy. That's his stuff, but he's done a lot more than just that, and he's really the one who sort of made the connection between things like the drag measurements and the stuff that I'm doing. He's the one who has found ways that seam height genuinely affects drag. He took it from theoretical to actual. Uh, so it's out there, but it's not, you know, that's why science is the way it is, is we're all learning different things and it goes together. I am not the person who is going to go out and do the direct aerodynamic stuff, but there are people who do like Barton, or there are people like Alan Nathan who will actually come up with uh, simulations or, you know, kind of theoretical calculations and things like that. And there's, or, or, you know, there's, I want to say Jim Albert who does modeling and statistics and things like that. So I hope I've gotten those. Right. That, that, that's good. But that's good to know, like you said, because I, I think as a person who's, who's looking at your work and all the other data available, you you make the thing as like, oh, because the baseball was changed and what, like you said, the seam, the seam height, the lace thickness, all these things, that has caused the baseballs to travel a certain way. And the answer is like, we potentially can say that, but we can't say that confirm, we can't confirm that based on a limited number of factors that, we, that we've studied in that case. Well, in 2020, I mean, I know we're going to jump ahead to this, but 2019, um, one of the things I found was that the, the leather was smoother. And that was even something that was postulated by the Home Run Committee as possibly leading to lower drag with smoother leather. And this was before the 2019 ball. They said this in relation to 2017. Um, I did find smoother leather. It took Barton's testing to show that smoother leather really didn't make a difference. So it affected things, but it affected more things like pitch or grip than home runs. And so that's, that's where that comes into play. So it's like, yes, I found smoother leather. You know, if someone comes out and they say, no, that's not have caused, great. Now we have an answer. You know, the last thing I'm going to do is double down and say that my hypothesis is right. You know, that's the whole point. Someone, someone needs to go out and make an attempt to disprove it or come up with a counter hypothesis. And until then, we don't know. But no, no scientist worth their salt is going to say, no, I'm right. That's just not how it works. That's true. I, 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 that's 100 percent true. Right. You have you have an answer to contribute to the, the line of thinking of what's going to happen. So we start with 2017. That's when the first home run home run search happens for the home run study. And they go 2018, 2019. He said 2019 was the, the air ball, the air drying year. They, they air drive. The, no, 2019 was was. Um, what was interesting with 2019 was that the ball was very, very different. Like I said, smoother. It had the smoother leather. Um, it also had much flatter seams and the balls were very round. So you weren't getting any deformation, like the deformation I was talking about with those, those, uh, with the laces being stretched just wasn't there. But the other thing that was odd was that the laces had become thin again. They were back to the kind of before, you know, the 27, well, 2014 going back because, you know, laces got thinner or were thinner up until then. But so you had these 2014 thickness laces on a ball that was somehow had flatter seams and was rounder. And that didn't entirely make sense until you can go back to that drying process and the way cotton 
dries. So you just talked about, you throw your t-shirt in the dryer, stuff shrinks back down. If you had these baseballs drying under some kind of heat process, instead of air drying, those laces would never have gotten a chance to stretch, which would keep the ball rounder, but it looks like the, the, the drying itself might have also kept those seams flatter. So I think it ultimately did come down to that single process. It's amazing. Like it's, it's, it's that specific. Like you said, it's that, like that process created the environment where these are all potential. Now, I know you brought some baseballs with you. And as we, as we, as we talk about like these elements, particularly with, cause I think of, when I think of hitting and batting and home runs, I think of Kazuki, you can kind of, I think of exit velocity of the ball off the bat and launching, which are like the two hallmark analytical studies right now. So if you look at the baseballs, you take apart a baseball, what factors of a baseball will affect those things? in particular, because I think about one team in particular, and we, Kazuki and I have gone back with this before we even started this talking the podcast here, was the Minnesota Twins of, of your, of the past couple of years, where they were hitting home runs like it was a single, like they would hit home runs and like Target Field doesn't seem like a home run ballpark. So you're like, what's going on? And they basically, as we can surmise from our discussion today, and I can kind of get it, but they created a team to hit baseballs out of the park based on the style of baseball that was in vogue for that year. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, they may have done it with the 2017 ball in mind, but the only, how would I put this? In the same way that uh, the 2017 ball, the kind of decisions that were being made, you would not have expected a juiced ball from that. In 2019, I'm, I can't come up with like a good reason why they would have associated changing the drying process in advance with creating a ball that would travel farther. I can't picture someone sitting down and saying, yeah, you know, if we heat dry the balls, then we'll end up with a ball that has less drag. However, um, once they did dry the balls, you know, like that, there's absolutely reporting from, you know, like the first week or so in the season that MLB did know the drag was lower on the 2019 balls, balls coming in. So they, they knew home runs would be up, even if that somehow wasn't being being communicated to anyone else. Uh, there's one Joel Sherman article from April 10th of 2019, and that's the only place you see it. But the, uh, the team certainly would not have known bef- you know, when they would have been forming a roster for 2019 that we were going to get that ball. I mean, and I cannot stress that's good. That's good for me to know, because like I said, I, it's easy to make an over assumption. I'm glad yeah. that you have corrected me on that one. Right. So like I said, if you look at the ball, take apart mm-hmm. the ball. Sure. What what factors should we notice as we start going into as you transition from batting from hitting into pitching? Like we start looking at the factors of the ball. Like you said, mm-hmm. there's the, le- the the tautness of the leather, the seam height. So what would you say if you like if you held the ball in your hand, you start taking it apart? Like what elements would those look like as we start like peeling apart part the ball back? Well, the the Oh, this is Axel. Told you they'd be here. So the, uh, I guess I might start with pitching for this, which is that the things that a pitcher is going to care about are the seams and particularly, I wouldn't necessarily say the height of the seams or just the height of the seams, but the extent to which the seams are, or, or at least the laces are pronounced such that there is a level of, if your grip involves the seams, 
you know, you want it so that you can either hold your finger against them or that, you know, I've, I've talked to people where that's the knuckle pushing against the seams. And uh, so that, that makes a difference. And I do think that thicker laces probably help with that. Certainly when we had the pitcher blister epidemic, that did seem to, you the know, pitcher blister connected. epidemic, something that we're like, Kazuki and I have brought up before is like, what mm-hmm. was this? And now we're going to learn that, that absolutely correlated with that thicker laces, which of course makes it interesting because I didn't hear much about blisters last year and the laces were thicker in 2020. Ah, so I'm not sure, but we should, we should keep an know. eye out because blisters might start up again. Um, but yeah, so so that's one. The other is, and I don't have a 2019 ball here. That's fine. So I suppose we're, we're, happy, we're happy to take whatever balls you have, whatever the baseball right. you have in front but of you so, to, to study. I mean, this does show it. This, in fact, this is a 2017. Okay, that, the, that, the so that thing, would be the, 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 the original home run king yeah, ball. Yeah, this is home, this run, is home run surge one. Okay. But the uh, the other thing is, and you can actually see on this that, um, there we go, the the sort of the dirt on it, This is this is actually a rubbed up baseball. You know, it's got the mud on it that the, the umpires put on it. There is absolutely a difference in the 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 friction that you can get. So how, how the leather gets, I guess, maybe not rougher exactly, but it's a lot easier to hold a ball that's been rubbed up. There's a reason that they call unrubbed up balls pearls. <laughs> you know, ah, it's not just the color. It's because they kind of feel like that. But the... Uh, um, the 2019 balls, one of the one of the problems with the 2019 balls that you don't see here was that in order to have the mud stick, there are their pores. I mean, leather was ultimately the skin of the cow. So there's pores that the mud actually gets forced into. Those pores were almost non-existent on the 2019 leather. So there was nothing to make the mud stick. So even if you had a rubbed up ball, a lot of times you couldn't tell it was rubbed up because the mud just wouldn't get into the pores. There was nowhere for it to stick to, uh, you know, be a picture rubbing mud on patent leather shoes. It's just not going to be there. It would just you rub know, right gonna, off. It would just, right, slide, exactly. just, it slide, would just slide straight off your shoe. Right. So, so that was, that was one of the problems with 2019 was that you couldn't get that the grip that's added by adding the mud couldn't happen on the 2019 ball. So you had a slick ball that stayed slick because of the way it was slick to begin with. Um, but so those are the things that pitchers would have noticed, particularly in 2019. So when you heard, when you heard that, um, that, you know, pitchers were unhappy with the ball, there were a lot of reasons like they, the, in some ways, I think Rawlings probably thought that they had come up with what you might think of as the perfect baseball. Their goals tended to be, um, smoother. What was it? Uh, flatter seams, smoother leather and rounder. And so they, they nailed all those. They got incredibly flat seams. They got incredibly smooth leather. They got a very round ball. And it turns out that the perfect baseball isn't actually very good for playing baseball. But there you go. <laughs> that would seem like it's like almost like a perfect sphere, like that that that, that, that type of... Uh, yeah, kind of. Well, it, it's and again, it's it's it sort of speaks to what the stated goals are in a theoretical sense versus what that means in, in, in a real world sense. But as far as, as far as hitting, I'm not, I mean, hitters love the 2019 ball. Um, although not. And they seem to love the 2017 ball too. It seemed like that was, that was perfect for them to. But to, in, in that case, it's really just that the ball traveled farther. Um, I would say probably the most important thing. And you can think of this, for instance, with the postseason, uh, 2019 postseason, I should say, was that um, more important, home runs are great. 
for fielders, I think consistency is probably important too. You know, that was one of the problems with the 2019 postseason was that you ended up, spoiler, with two two types of baseballs being used. It was a 2019 ball and there was balls from another season that um, had, you know, higher seams, substantially higher drag. And so you either had a ball that was going to leave the park like a normal 2019 ball, or you had a ball that was going to die. I mean, the, just Will Smith's non-home run is is like, you know, if everybody should remember that for 2019. Right. Higher postseason in 2019 essentially pivoted on a single pitch. Right. You're one. talking about the game five NLDS at Dodger Stadium, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yep. I also that, thought that, that was home been, run too. That would have been the winning run in the bottom of the ninth. And instead it was an out and they went to extras and the Nats went on to win. And ultimately the Nats won the World Series. I did not so, I did not know that until today. Think about it. I did it. not know that. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That yeah. one a, a chain a single difference in a baseball in, influenced the pitch that was Will Smith hit in that game and then Nick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the entire postseason turned on a single pitch with the wrong baseball. That's amazing. That is just I am it's horrifying. Just, it's, it's it's horrifying that you could find like that discrepancy and that existed and it happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, I'm just dumbfounded, honestly. It's just like how 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 you how you could miss that factor. Just like oh, there's a different baseball on this single pitch that could determine the outcome. It's like a ref calling make a bad call. It's like it's, uh, you mean like like Jim Joyce and Armando Colorado's. Oh yeah, like that one too. That was a good one. Yeah, that's a, that's a good example. Although I, I you know it, I I want someone to give him that game back because as far as I'm concerned, Colorado made 28 outs in a row. Oh, he absolutely. Which did. frankly gives him more credit than any other pitcher in history. Yeah. Actually, no. Did did uh, that's not true. Pedro Martinez did because he took it to extras. Oh, he did. That's so Pedro right. Martinez actually he must have gotten what tw- twenty nine, I guess, right? Yeah. It's it's just like you said. It's amazing how these like one little subtle yeah. change, like you said, we're looking, we're looking at the, like the baseball, not the act, like the game itself <laughs> is affected by the baseball. But look at the actual right. thing you hold in your hand or you catch in your mitt. <laughs> And like how you do it. So you you brought up pitching and we'll brought up their thing. And we have to go to like the we this past week we heard like the doctoring of a baseball and the we are we are going to monitor the use of foreign substances on a ball. And we think about like several comments have been made over the past years about like people trying to doctor, doctor a baseball to make it so it will be easier to um to grip it. Or to right. spin it a certain way. Sticky and, substances. Uh, yes. Sticky substances. And everyone goes down to spin rate, which obviously influences certain types of pitches and the ability to throw them. And I, I'm i just curious, like, what what are they talking about with all these things? Like, why, why, like, why are you doing it? What's the impact of it? And like you said, every different year changes in a baseball. Like, are they just doing different things each year? Are they like, how are they doing it? I mean, the certain pitchers have come out and been very public about, like, we know pitchers are doing this. And it's like, what do you mean? It's like, why are people talking about changing a baseball, like altering the baseball to do this? Yeah, I don't. Um, I mean, the only discussions that I've heard about changing the baseball, and I have actually seen some of these prototypes, is there there has been some uh, effort on uh, the part of Rawlings to somehow change the, the surface of the leather so that it mimics the... Um, what the mud is like without using the mud. Although I think that's probably just because they don't want to pay for uh, Delaware River mud anymore. But uh, 
there's it sort of also fits into, you know, can we somehow make the baseball like it already has stuff on it that the pitchers would use? I'm not sure this is I'm probably in the minority with this opinion, but a huge percentage of players use sticky stuff. And the the way that the only way I can think of to really set up the rules um, really isn't tenable. You'll hear people talk a lot about if you, you know, if they somehow want to make it so that pitchers aren't using it, that the umpires have to start policing. No, that is not the umpire's job. If we make that the umpire's job, the game gets much more complicated. That rule, as with most rule, pretty much any rules that the the umpire um, actually enforces, if there is a problem, the other team has to call it out. I mean, it, it'd be comparable to someone hitting a double and failing to touch first base. If the other team does not say something, or if nobody throws the ball to the first baseman for him to step on the bag, that guy gets credited with the double. The other team has to notice and make sure that the rule is enforced. So with foreign substances on the ball, it's the same thing. And we've seen this in the past, you know, where, where you'll have a manager come out and say, you know, we want you to check the pitcher because we think he's got a nail file or we think he's putting something on the ball. And then the umpire checks. The umpire does not look at every baseball. And you hear lots and lots of stories about that. It's, it's, the balls are clearly coming in with stuff on them. But if nobody says anything, it's not the umpire's job to then say, oh, yeah, we're, we're you know, that they're going to tell everybody when a given pitch comes in, I'm calling out this pitcher. I mean, think about how disruptive that would make the game. And, you know, umpires already have enough flack. I just I can't even imagine trying to be an umpire under those circumstances. Can you imagine what the home team would do if you took out their starting pitcher because maybe he had sticky stuff on the ball? But you know, I can't imagine I just, how long the game would become. I mean, the game's already long point. enough. Another point too, yeah, right. And so, so it's not it's not their job. Um, the other thing, frankly, is it sounds like so many guys are doing it that you know, if it really is ninety percent, then why is the rule even there? And I, it, oh, not to mention that the 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 most common uh, sticky stuff reference you hear about is basically sunscreen and rosin. How in the heck? Are you going to have, I mean, are you going to ban pitchers from using sunscreen? Are you going to take away the rosin bag? How the heck are, or, or even then, that means the catcher probably can't use sunscreen either. God forbid he gets it on his hands or the umpire or anyone. Or any fielder because they would have, they can touch the ball at any time. Yeah. So, so you, you, you start coming into, when you start taking these rules to their, their logical conclusions, it's just, it's not tenable to enforce them. And even the stuff that was put out in the last week or so. I don't know how that enforcement worked. Like you said, it would mostly just take a lot of time and you'd have a lot of people contesting it and probably nothing would happen. Uh, so I, one of the things that, that the MVP machine talks about this a little, um, this is uh, Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sochik, if you guys have read it. Um, it's that, it's, I did get those two right. Those are the two authors. There's we'll so double check. We'll double check. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's not, I apologize. But um, there is a discussion of someone testing different kinds of substances on the baseballs and that skin, you know, like, like he, he'd throw the ball and skin was coming away on his fingers. So it seems to me like there is a, an ex, a limit 
at which having sticky stuff becomes a problem because you probably start creating blisters. That's how you have right. blisters. Right, and we, talk, we, we brought up earlier about this blister epidemic that happened a couple of years ago with right. pitchers were going out, going taking, having starts, everything, because they were, fingers were just chopped up and all, and it looked, it looked like they'd been in boxing matches. Like they looked like they were, they were, they looked really dis, like disgusting, their hands. Right. But, but so the, I guess my thought is that just get rid of the rule, you know, and I realize I realize that there's there's sort of this long history of, you know, we're, we're trying to make it so that that, you know, everybody's playing on the same playing field. But. We can either try to stop guys from cheating or we can change the rule so it's no longer cheating with the understanding that it's probably going to be hard. There, there's going to be a limit in which that stuff will even work because if you push it too far, it's going to start becoming a problem for the pitcher in another way. And maybe the ultimate way to look at this is it's not that simple. A total crackdown Do, it doesn't does, It doesn't sense. sound simple at all. I mean, we've been going about back yeah. and forth about this for a while. It's just like, it's mm-hmm. like, I think about like Trevor Bowers thing about like, he is the king. Everyone deemed him the king of spin rate. I'm like, like what? How, like, like, what does he do differently? Like every, he has this, like, he has to do something differently with some of the ball to like make it so like he throws it a certain way. And like everyone starts going down like, they goes like, does he put something on it? Does like, it's like, we have, we have to remember like, oh yeah, the baseball keeps changing every year. So like, does it make it easier for you to like grip it a certain way to spin it a certain way? Like we, we watch people like with, um, in like, in like other sports, like with bait, with these like softballs, like how they can spin a ball a certain way. I'm like, so they can do that. Like, do they put something on? So you keep asking questions and questions and questions and questions and questions. We all kind of want just want like like a baseline answer, like you said, about like how does a person get a higher or lower spin rate? Then- I would. I don't know if someone's addressed it, but this, but something that I would love to know, and I could see as being even an even greater advantage than just having as high a spin rate as possible is, I mean, the extreme that we see is like a knuckleballer. A knuckleball pitcher is able to throw the ball so that it basically doesn't spin at all. So if he has any other pitch, that's going to have spin and then the knuckleball doesn't. I am not aware of situations where you don't, where a player can actively change his spin rate in a controlled way. That would, I think would be, you have to change your release very specifically. And I have a feeling that's quite hard to do, but that strikes me as something that people should be looking at if they're not already, because let's say you, let's say you throw a changeup that looks exactly the same coming out of your hand. And one's got a spin rate of X and one's got a spin rate. That's twice that. Right. I mean, like, like you, you kind of see a little bit of like changes and release a little bit of different pitchers and everything. But like I said, it's just this like, isn't the, this isn't just the release location. This would literally be how the fingers are touching it. So I want to say is a, a knuckleball actually has to do with, with how you push it. So when I talk about release, I mean, I'm this because I'm talking about physically out of the hand at the last minute. Right. So if you, if you have, if you have, you still have your 2017 baseball handy with you. Oh, sure. Um, so, if you, so if you, if you're holding that and you were trying to throw, like I said, a knuckleball, like you would grip it. Obviously we know how knuckleball is grip. It's like, I don't actually know. I, I, well, um, the same way I think no, I just, Orioles Stephen pitcher, Wright. I'm blanking on his name. I know Tim Wakefield did it. No, no, no. There's a there's a there's a uh, a new guy, rookie. Not John Means. Uh, Aiken? No, not Aiken. 
you can, you can look it up. Sorry, I feel bad. <laughs> it's fine. I, I I could check it, but it'll take too long. So I'm I don't think I'm getting his grip right, but I remember him describing it as something like he's he you actually hold right. the fingers back, right, and then and then you push at the last minute, right, and then you're looking like a, like a, like a, like a, like, a, like and you're like your standard pitch is like a curveball, fastball, you know, kind of thing because those those. I'm not even going to try to do grips on those. Yeah, <laughs> but like the the you say like when I th- yeah. I think when I thought of spin rate it was like. It just was like they hold the ball, they put their finger, they arc their fingers a certain way. But you said it could be the baseball. Like we're we're talking about like the actual change in the baseball have allowed have changed the ability for spin rate to be like you said the seam height was certainly. I'm, I'm not sure. That's one you run by Barton Smith. That's I'm interesting. I'm not actually sure how that would because it, it seems like you would have a couple. First of all the spin rate would probably slow down more with higher right, seams, like, but about the drag difference. you would have more grip as you're spinning the ball up. So I don't know how those balance out. It's a good question. I think about it. Cause like we, we you used to talk about, Smith on. We, we should talk, we talked about like you said, the smooth of the ball allows you like, like you said, like the mud, like the, the, the rough up the ball. Yeah, it's like, but I mean, it's, if you've got more, if you, if you can grip the ball better, cause that was the thing was grip was really the issue with the, the, the flatter laces and the smoother leather. Right. So if you can grip the ball better such that it's controlled coming out of your hand more, cause I mean, the slip of at the end is probably where the issue is going to come in. If you know oh. for a fact it's coming out, in a way that's going to spin the way you want it to, then the fact that it's going to potentially slow down more quickly or lose spin more quickly, more to the point because of that that friction from the, um, or air resistance, I should say, that's going to spin, slow the spin down, they may counteract. I don't know. That's a good question. That's more, Or they uh, will. It's just a question of how. Because like you said, we've always talked about the the base changes in baseball, and we generally look at the home run rate. But I think there's there's this exploration now that needs to be done with the pitching, like talk about spin rate and grip and all these things. And I know you 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 have multiple baseballs with you, and you look at those. So uh, before we get into like what we hope to see in 2021, a little bit with, 20, with, with the new baseball, if you could like uh, show us like some like interesting little tidbits about like the actual baseball, because like you said, we can't really do show and tell unfortunately right now in front of you. But like there there's there's certain elements of a baseball when you tear it apart. They're just frankly just cool. I'm just I'm just I go. It's just it's it's just something that like we never waited to see unless someone like takes a razor blade and like rips it out. And like we would never do that to our own baseballs because we probably don't have enough to do it. Well, I do have enough to. I, I was going to say, I think I've only got three or four hundred here right now. Oh, I can't count. I got like maybe zero. So <laughs> yeah. It, it just, uh, after you do the stuff, you accumulate. So yeah, as opposed to taking the uh, 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 razor to it, the way that I'll take the laces out, by the way, um, this is literally all stuff you can do at home. So I did, in fact, already make my surgical cut right there. Okay. And um, so instead of taking a razor to the rest of it, that's the only place that the razor blade gets used. This is a T-pin. So I'm something sure you use when that. you're from your sewing and knit. Is it, that's well, a, actually, this is uh, something that you'd get at any hobby store. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't even remember why I had them lying around. And then what I'll do is I will stick the T-pin under a lace like that. Okay. Make sure I'm in focus. And then I hope it's I like have it's, this it's, cut in the right place. There we go. It seems like it's, it's like it's like unsewing something. It's amazing. Uh, that's exactly what you're doing. In fact, you are taking, you are literally taking out stitches. Uh how much you want to bet I cut this in the wrong place? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, I, I, if I cut it one stitch over, I'm going to like look like a real idiot. 
Well, I think that is just a fact of the science. Like you said, you have to find the exact spot. And you have <laughs> I to like this one over. Right. It's and, like, and there's you, trial and error in science. This is the razor. Well, no, I, I'm making a fool of myself right now because like I pride myself on being able to do this well. And what I'm demonstrating right now is that scientists make mistakes all the time. Well, I think so there you I go. Just, I took the razor to that right there. This means that I'll lose about an inch in length, which then becomes a problem for measuring lace thickness. I'll show you that too. That's actually kind of cool. Okay. And this is all you can do this at home stuff. So like you so, said, you could, you could take a baseball you buy at the sporting goods store yes. and a bunch of equipment and things you have in your homes, like mm -hmm. a teeny, a, a T-pin, a, um, uh, a, a box cutter razor blade. Box cutter razor blade, tape measure. Very important because you uh, need that for a- A loose um, tape measure, okay. Like the stuff that yeah, I- Yeah, tape like, measure. And that's, that's actually like a broken one from something else. Okay, so what I'm doing now is I'm taking the T-pin, okay. sticking it under the laces like that. And that. basically being a seamer. And then I just, I'm literally like, let's see if I can do this with, uh, there we go. Once I get this out, it'll just be Just so, and, and, so, so can you she has literally that? ripped off the seam of a baseball. No, can, right can, can, uh, there we go. Can you see that? Yeah. You, you, I feel like I'm unsewing something. That's exactly what you're doing. And in fact, it helps to do a lot of these because, uh, what you want to do is develop a technique where you are not, it's really easy with a, a pin like this to tear. Um, I feel like I'm not focused very well on it. You're, you're great. It's it's like, you're, yeah. I, I feel like I'm like, I'm like, yeah. we're, we are seeing the stitches of a baseball just being peeled apart, just yeah. one yeah. by one. But but the, the key is that it's really easy to stick the, the pin through the laces and then it gets all frayed and it's a pain. But, you know, I'll also do things like, um, you know, this is my, uh, this, there's actually a bunch you can do with this. Like, you know, so you can get like a cross section with your tool thing. Again, tool these, are, these are all things you can either find at home or order online. Right. So that's how you get a diameter of baseball. Um, ultimately, once I've done all that, you end up with laces. Yeah, this is so that, this is like that, the cooking that, that show where the, there's so like that all would just, the stuff just done for context. That's the red laces on the exterior. These are the, the red laces on the ball. This is the ball from, this is exactly literally the ball from which these laces came from. Um, and, and you can tell this is what I mean about like, I want this to be as long as possible. That's this, each of those stitches, by the way, um, see how there's actually two ends coming out of that? It, yep. Every single one of these is done with two, two pieces of thread together, which is partly why it's as tight as it is. It's because it makes a, it makes a huge difference if there's one lace or two. Oh, wow. Um, it, it's, no, it's, just, it's, it's a strength thing, actually. Um, and I've since taken that backwards to some of my knitting stuff, which is funny. It's like, you know, oh, oh yeah, that's right. This is a way to make something tougher. So this is my favorite. I can find my, my chopstick. There it is. So this is my favorite measuring tool. It is a chopstick. As in the chopstick ruler. that you would use to eat? As in, yeah, as in, as in a chopstick. Oh, you know, you can see the end there. There's a chopstick. Yeah, end. It's a true chopstick. Chopstick, end. It's yeah. a true chopstick from a, some takeout place. Uh, I put ruler tape on it, and this is actually Gorilla tape on either side. I think it was originally electrical tape, but it started moving around. And so when I found lace thickness for um, for 2017, see what I'm doing? You're creating literally wrapping laces around this, and you make sure they get pulled super tight because you want to make sure that you're not able to really. They have to be pulled against the the thing as much as possible against the chopstick as much as possible because you don't want gaps and you don't want to be able to slide it back and forth. You know, you want it to, to essentially be 
so that the laces aren't squished side to side. But you do this enough, and I mean, we could quite literally get a measurement on this while we're talking if you want. But eventually, I'll, you know, it'll get out to, he says, I'll do it in centimeters. You get it like to at least four centimeters. And then I'll figure out how many wraps I'm getting for a given centimeter. And that tells me you take the inverse of that. Like if I have number of wraps per centimeter, then I can figure out the thickness if I just flip the fraction as, you know, a, a fraction of a centimeter. Yeah, is that cool? It's like just mind-blowing, just like looking at and, that. And I mean, pretty much every, actually, yeah, everything that I've shown you is either something you already have at home or something that you can buy for under 20 bucks. So, yeah, everybody, everybody should try this. I mean, it's it's not hard. It's really not hard. No, it's blind. Yes, I'm continuing it's just to do this my mind, like, oh, yeah. wow, like. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just speechless. It's just so cool. Like the beauty of what we're talking about today is pretty cool in the sense that everyone, like I too thought analytics was really hard. Like it's really hard to get into. Like you need like that gateway, like that one thing, like to get you through the door. And literally you have shown us today that all you need is a one major league baseball, a couple of household tools and a chopstick. And well, it's, what, what I will say is that this isn't what I would consider true analytics. This is science. And, and that's even better. I guess it's science. It sounds, like, science it sounds is... like a weird distinction, but analytics really does have a lot more to do with statistics. It's much more about here are measurements that you have, and you are trying to find the way in which those data seem to have some kind of predictive ability, but it's based on probabilities. What I'm doing here is I am gathering data on something where I don't even necessarily know what's going to come out of it yet. Uh, but right. yeah, and I, the data like itself are and I think forward, so. the fact that it's science makes it, yeah. it maybe it makes it even better. It is science. Because yeah. science is even like, I think sometimes even a harder thing to kind of get that first itch, that first step into. It's like, you think of like, it's going to be really hard to be complicated. I'm not going to know what I'm doing. Not really. Just take a couple of things, like a, like, a, like a baseball, get a couple of household tools and start taking it apart. And it, you, you start, you start, like you said, we're all like, Kazuki and I are just absolutely in awe of this process of watching this all happen because like we think of a baseball or a, we play softball it's like you take it in your hand you just hold it it's a ball but then when you actually like what happens when you take this out and it's like and you think about like a recipe like you take ingredients out of a, out of a, out of a recipe and you put them in and it's like it's the same thing it's just you're putting things together then they make a hole and we're now just pulling it apart which, which i think is kind of like our i lead into like our final conversation topic is the 2021 season is upon us. Should we expect anything different because of the baseball? Is the baseball, is there anything we should know about the baseball in 2021 to really say like, are we gonna get like the thought of a Minnesota Twins 20, 20 the thought of a, a Minnesota Twins bomb squad again? Are we gonna get like pitchers, are we gonna get home run rates that are gonna be off the charts? Are we gonna get pitchers doing this and that? But in all in all, like if we take a 21 base, 2021 baseball in our hands, what should we expect from it? Oh boy, this is a trick. You don't realize if this is a trick question. Um, if you take a 2021 baseball, it's going to, and in fact, this one is, this is, this is actually a 2021 spring training baseball. Uh, it's very likely something that was manufactured as part of game production for 2020. However, it's also quite possible that this is a 2021 game ball. 
So when you talk about, and, and remember MLB had that internal memo that they sent to, to GMs and AGMs and equipment managers. One of the sort of things that has gotten lost is that they say even in that memo that balls they manufactured for the 2021 season, or excuse me, for the 2020 season are going to be used in 2021 games. Um, there was an article in Sports Illustrated in February, find it online. Uh, Stephanie Epstein wrote it. It was about my study of the 2020 ball. And what I found was that 2020 had two kinds of, literally two kinds of baseballs. One of them was kind of like, you know, that was a lot, maybe like 2018, but certainly that kind of baseball. And that uh, the key, and this goes back to what I was just showing you with the covers, this center, which is really just all of the wrapped stuff on the inside, um, was the same as centers going back at least to like 2000, 2000 was as far back as my data go. Um, but there were, there's four months worth of production that I found as part of the 2020 production cycle. And it is a 12 month cycle um, where this center was very, very different. It was um, two of the yarn layers, there's three yarn layers, two of the yarn layers had changed. Uh, one was substantially lighter, the other was a little heavier which means it was really hard to justify as, okay, this, it couldn't be an accident, even from before we talked to MLB. And the entire thing was also substantially lighter. So it's much lighter plus a little heavier equals lighter, noticeably lighter. So there were two kinds of baseballs being used. That being said, you couldn't tell the difference from the outside. I'm serious. Like, and, and to the point where when That's I was taking stuff apart, that, so that, we had yeah. two different kinds of baseballs that were externally identical and nobody even knew there were two kinds until I took them apart. So no player from last year is going to, there were all these questions that if you talk to players from last year, they, they couldn't figure out if the ball was juiced or not. Well, they were right. The ball was juiced or not. Make sense. It, it was both. Because, because you there were tell. two kinds that they couldn't tell, they couldn't tell them apart. That's amazing. That's yep. crazy. Uh, and, and actually terrifying when it's, you think about like, it. Like, like I said, it's, une un un it's uneven playing field. Like, like I can't imagine holding those two in your hand at the same time. Like, what 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 just happened? It's like it's, it's like you're watching. You have a mystery in your hands. Like, what what's going on? And you, the, you have the so many questions. That, yeah. The, the problem there was, I mean, the, the pitchers would have found them as consistent. The problem was that you couldn't tell till the ball left the bat, and so you would see. You'd see sometimes where, you know, the ball, particularly in the postseason, it was interesting to watch outfielders set up because you could tell some of them had figured out they weren't sure if the ball was going to be short or over their heads. And so you'd see the smart guys would be setting up sort of tentatively on the edge of the warning track so that they would be prepared to sprint in to catch it if or field it if they needed to. Um, but I also remember seeing there was one one double double header in Atlanta against uh, the Yankees, and it was the two two of the five longest home runs the Braves had ever hit were hit in that series or in that double header. But the interesting ones there were three other home runs that were short. Those were much more interesting because if you watch the fielders, I mean, there's one where Brett Gardner, Brett Gardner, he's I mean, he's been around for a long time. He's good at what he does. He's watching the ball, and you can see him sort of set up, expecting it's going to be a flyout. And then he realizes it's still in the air and he keeps running. He keeps running. He ultimately jumped at the wall and the ball ended up about 12 seats back. Brett Gardner, of all people, should not misread a baseball 
so badly that he jumps at the wall expecting to make a catch and it lands 12 rows behind him. That's a read that just, that was just wrong. He didn't know where that ball was going to end up. That's amazing that you bring this up about the postseason because Kazuki and I, when we broke down the postseason in our first episodes together, we talked about defensive formations and like how there were some of the outfield formations were just puzzling at times or incredibly smart. And it seems like, the, right. And like, it seems like this could have potentially been a factor. We don't know now, but it's like, I think so if you look to the, the current season ahead of us, we don't know. It's amazing that we could say like Actually, we don't. We may. We, we we may know like are we, so we yeah, potentially. No, no, that's that's the cool thing is is because remember I said MLB already told us that balls that were made during the 2021 production cycle were literally going to be the 2021 baseball. They were going to show up in 2021 games. The balls that they've said are those balls that will be in 2021 are those balls with the new specs, the lighter balls. So that the question just becomes cross used in 2020. Right. They showed up in MLB said they weren't supposed to show up in 2020 games, but they did. I found them in 2020 games. So whether or not they were supposed to be there, they were clearly being used. And if you look at some of the data, particularly related to home run distributions, it looks like they were being used a lot, a lot of different places. And it looks like there were two types of baseballs in most parks um, because you had sort of this, it looked like there were a bunch of balls that would travel much further than anything we'd seen. And you had some balls actually that were traveling not as far, meaning that that normal ball as it were might've actually been slightly dead. But if that new spec ball really is traveling farther and what gets even weirder is they, when they sent that memo out, they specifically talked about, yeah, this ball is going to be deader than previous years, which what they did was they changed what's called the coefficient of restitution. They just made it so that the exit velocities should go down. And they did change what they changed about the winding on the inside of the ball. Yes, it absolutely would deaden the ball coming off the bat. The problem is that's just about exit velocity. The actual drag is not something you can measure in a lab because the balls really are different enough on the outside where it's not like you just test a few you need to start looking at that stat cast data. Otherwise, we would have been looking at drag long before 2015. You need like a lot, a lot of games to start getting a feel for what the real drag is. They were never going to test that in this factory. They wouldn't have had enough baseballs. Right. And the problem is that it looks like we may have had a real life test in 2020, and just whether they it. intended it or not. And I think their dead ball might not be like oh, at boy. all. Well, so fine. your twins might be fine. Twins might be fine. In fact, I think they're pretty likely to be fine. Okay. Yeah, because I actually have a whole stat of like home run per game, both for the spring train, spring and regular season. So, what did you find for spring training this year? Uh, it's one point oh six per game. So it's very similar to twenty seventeen, which was one point oh seven. So I'm guessing if we go by that number, and last year twenty twenty was one point two eight for the regular season. So I'm guessing it might be between the 2017, which is 1.26. So it might be around 1.27 home runs per game. That's like just a so quick analysis. We, we have, we have. The, 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 what I'm finding in spring training is I'm getting old spec and new spec balls. Oh. So I oh think boy. that the home run rate, it, again, and it's assuming that those new specs are the ones that are traveling farther. If that's the ball, that's going to travel farther. Uh, Rob Arthur did find the drag was slightly lower so far in spring training because the data are available. And I want to say Mike Axia had found that that the home run rate in spring training was higher. But 
you know, it sounds like your data might be a little different on right. that. Right. It's, it's like you say, so. it's, it's, it could potentially, could potentially see another potential shift in or, or, or we, we could say, but I love the, I love the story about like, we don't know what happened in 2020. There was two balls and they were just interchangeably used. And we had the Brett Gardner story. Like I'll have to go back and like, we'll have to notice it's, that it's, now watch it's, you. There, there's a double, I want to say it was like August 25th or 26th. We'll, we'll have to go. Right I, yeah, I go think we'll have to game. do is to watch the, mm-hmm. why I, I listened to a lot of games this year and I'm curious if the, if, and, I'm curious about like radio broadcasters will call it, but if I, I, I live in New York, because you can't mm-hmm. both live in New York area. I wonder mm-hmm. if we catch like a, a, a Yankees game, like mm-hmm. if we'll see like Brett Gardner have adjusted because Brett Gardner was like, is like the one example we can think of, like how he adjusts to the playing of the field because we don't know. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. There, there's, if you look at that game, I, I want to say, was it Luke Voigt? There, there was one home run hit to right field that was remarkable because you saw the outfielder set up three different ways expecting he was going to be able to feel the ball and ultimately it ended up six, of course, six runs back. Point, and you point. could tell afterwards, he's like, okay, that just wasn't going to work. <laughs> but it was, it was the compensation on his part for reading the ball was actually really well done. And in the end, he's like, you know, he could tell it was out of his hands, literally. That's but great. it was it was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, on that note, we greatly Sorry. appreciate all this. Thing. This was this was absolutely incredible. I don't think Kazuki and I would have expected to go on these like very fine points and then get like stories about like things that we just honestly missed from years past. So we'll get you out on what we call our final segment: three strikes and you're out. Three questions about baseball, about your interest in baseball. So oh first question: your favorite baseball stadium that you have been to, past or present? Oh, wow. These always tend to be quite um, fun and hard. I like it, though. Yeah, I um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's it, maybe it's it's a cop out. I had um, I had, uh, you know, sort of mini plants and season tickets at Coors Field. Uh, and I just love Coors. Uh, it's a, it's know, a, it's a great just, ballpark. It's a beautiful, I, it's a beautiful I, I, stadium. Uh, it's got the coolest bullpen anywhere. Oh, the, like the bullpen the, is, is elevated a bullpens. Elevated bullpens yeah. are phenomenal. No, it's, I, it, but I mean, it's, it's, it's literally a forest. It's great. And I think my favorite part about Coors, though, was that, and I hope it's still like this, that, uh, you know, I got to know a lot of people. I love taking my time after the game. I'll tally parts of my scorebook. I would be so late leaving. I might be, I, I, I think I might've been the last fan leaving for a lot of games to the point where they would actually have the gates chained shut. And I had to know there was a particular side door that I could go out of that was an emergency exit that was not gonna set off an alarm. And I'd leave out of that door <laughs> because amazing. it was the only one I could that do it. That is absolutely incredible. And they didn't throw me out. Miller oh, good Park, for them. or whatever they call it now, will throw me out which is a shame because you would think Wisconsin, right? Wisconsin nice. Wisconsin nice obviously stops the security at Miller Park. Well, I think it's, I think it's American, fam, fam, American Family Insurance Whatever Park it's called. Yeah, yeah, American yeah, Family Field or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Okay, so then next question is the team that you root for, your favorite baseball team. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's, it's, it's I guess uh, as a fan, it's the Rockies. Although, you know, right now it's hard not to be disillusioned by the Rockies. I, actually, I've, I have been watching the A's more lately and the A's, Oh no, damn, I should have said Oakland Coliseum. Oakland Coliseum. We could change it. Uh, yeah, we, we'll take two. Is, we'll yeah, take, take no, two. Take I two. gave two but my I first time. American don't worry. And National League, right? Yeah, no. it's fine. Oakland I gave two Coliseum, my first time. I've started going more in the last couple of years because I've been I've been out in the Bay Area more. And Oakland Coliseum is amazing because it's a dump. Ah, yeah. right. It's like a football field, right? It's an old football field. It, it is. It's, it's also it also used to be the Raiders, but the the great thing about it is that 
The only people who go there are people who really want to go to the games. If you go to the Giants Park, it's kind of like people going to like happy hour at a bar and a ball game breaks out in the background. I will I will it's support so that. I will support that only because my family lives near there. And oh, I and I know that you can you can walk up to the side of it on McCovey Cove and watch mm-hmm. readings for free. So basically the the park looks like it looks like it looks like actual park. It's beautiful. I love touring it. I toured it around a couple of years ago. But mm-hmm. O.Co. Coliseum, Oracle Coliseum, whatever you want to call it now. Mm-hmm. It's just not the greatest looking, but such a good environment for baseball. Like I love listening to the to Ken Korak and the Oakland East broadcast because they can just they can feel it. It's just special. Um, so the Rockies for your baseball team player that you have greatly enjoyed your favorite player past, present, whenever. Oh man, my, my, my favorite player, you know, for, for years. And, and I've, I've actually since met him a couple of times and you're going to love this. Uh, so I grew up a Yankees fan. Um, um my favorite gonna, player, uh, was love Jim, this. And, and I, I didn't bring the ball over. I just found a ball of his that I have that signed is, is Jim Layritz. Uh, as, a, as a Seattle Mariners fan, I am uh-huh. te- I am not happy that you have picked Jim Leyritz because of that 1995 Division Series game. Oh gosh, he broke he he tied that. Oh, that stupid hit. Oh. He he. Uh, I remember when he hit that home run in Game Four of the eight, of the '96 World Series. You were, were down. You know, we we lost the first two oh, games. Man. Down two to one. Great you player. Knew, I knew we were going to win the series after that. He's a, and, he was a fantastic player for the Yankees for so many yeah. years. No, he was he was he was he was great, and I just I loved watching him. I loved the you know, uh, I, the only the only time the closest I've come to kind of fangirling for anything at you know winter meetings or I mean I can meet anyone. I don't get you know floored or whatever. When I got introduced to Jim Layers, I actually had the friend who's introduced. It's like you got to calm down before I introduce you. Yeah, it's just really funny. <laughs> and so, and he got a kick out of it. Like I've got something that I got him to sign. He's like, yeah, so my biggest fan ever. I was like, that's a great guy. I, that's He's just amazing. Guy. Yeah. Uh, and then the final question, like, uh, like the golden sombrero question, we found out, we met you because our friend Todd Radom brought up the topic. Oh, Todd, of, uh, yes. yeah, yeah. He brought up the topic of what topic should we talk about in our future episode? And he brought up, have you ever taken a part of baseball? So we asked the same <laughs> question to you. Sure. If you could pit, give us a topic to explore for a future episode of one of our guests, what would you say? Well, I mean, I've already set up Bart Smith. So I right. feel like you, you need to about have like, him on just to explain, like give a, give a good reason for why I'm finding all these things. Like, why do we care? That's great. Like, why, why, do why does, why do you find all these things in a baseball? That's a great yeah, answer. It's like, why, not even why do you find the things, but like, why does what I find matter? Right. That's, why, like, that, yeah. that's great. Uh, Dr. Meredith Wilt, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you so much. Uh, just so people can follow your work, uh, if you want to share your social media handle or anything you where they can follow your work uh, mm-hmm. currently. Yeah. So, so I'm pretty much just on Twitter and I'm hoping you guys write this down or put it up on a thing because I have the worst Twitter handle in the world, which is it's short for baseball astrophysics, but it's BBL underscore. And then the word astrophysics without the I, because the Twitter handles were character limited back when I got it. I couldn't make it any longer. Don't worry. Our uh, baseball, our, our podcast uh, Twitter handle is also limited. So it's on our B-ball instead of on our baseball because it's oh, still limited. Yeah. So we don't want to, you know, we keep on saying we're not associated with basketball, but unfortunately B-ball, people think of basketball. Well, it's all. Well, this is, like I said, this is an absolute joy. Meredith, Dr. Meredith Wells, 
Thank you very, very much. Everyone can go find her work on Twitter. We'll share the link in our show notes. Uh, and thank you again for a really exciting conversation about, Thanks, this was what, fun. about taking a part of baseball. Okay, great. You should try it yourself. Take videos, send pictures. That's it for this episode of Sarnar Baseball. This episode of Sarnar Baseball is hosted and produced by me, Kazuki Akiba and Brandon Beiser. This episode was edited by Kazuki Akiba with additional research by Brandon Beiser. Our theme song is by Kay Margus. Sarnar Baseball is a production of Daylight and Media 3 Limited. We'll be back with another episode. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast as more people will know about this show. Go to daylightinteractive.com to see some exclusive updates and more about our upcoming shows. I'm Kazuki Akiba. And I'm Brandon Beiser. And this has been Sound Our Baseball.